Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick and Amy and Riley. Please open your Bibles once again to Isaiah chapter 9. Join me once again as we approach God's throne in prayer. Father, we come again to you because we have the privilege of approaching the throne of grace in the name of Jesus to ask for help, help in our need to comprehend, or help in our need to appropriate the truth. Lord, I'm sure that all of us can identify with the song that was just sung. We come to you weak and weary. Not always living up to the standard that is set for us. And yet, your grace is always sufficient. Help us, Lord, to embrace this reality. Receive it. Allow the work of Christ through His Spirit to pervade our hearts and our lives to bring forth healing from our brokenness and our woundedness and cause us to walk in freedom and victory in Jesus Christ over the things that weigh us down, the burdens and besetting issues in our lives. We have been set free. Christ came for that purpose. And Lord, today as we focus upon this solution and the prophecy, Lord, help us to gain a greater grasp of who this one is that came for us. For we pray this again in the mighty name. Well, one day a woman was riding in the car with her husband and four or three rambunctious little boys. They were sitting in a stoplight, and she looks over at the car beside her and sees a blissfully happy young mother with her little baby girl. And she turns to her husband and she says, you know, once I lose the weight from my last pregnancy, I'd like to try again for a baby girl. To which the husband responded by reaching up on the dash, grabbing a box of open snacks and said, here, have another cookie. (laughs) You know, sometimes we can view something from a sentimental perspective and not really see and understand the whole picture of what life is like in all of its aspects. And I think that sometimes we can do that at Christmas time. Right? There's so much about this time of year that can stir up sentimentality in us. Maybe it's memories of past Christmases. Maybe growing up. Maybe your, your childhood was one that was filled with lots of wonderful memories. Certainly that's not true for everyone, but it is true for some. There's much about the season, our traditions, and things maybe we've established in our own home with our own children growing up that we look back on with great fondness and with sentimentality. But even when we 
focus upon uh, what Christmas is about, the, the, the Christ coming and being born. We can sometimes spend all of our time focusing upon the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and become very sentimental about Christmas and the, the, the wonder of the, the, this baby. And, and we can romanticize the, uh, or the whole event and how, how wonderful it must have been to be in this cozy little uh, cave and, and stable with, uh, surrounded by the animals. But think about that for a moment. Imagine if that was how you brought a child into the world. And that was the surroundings. We can very easily sentiment, uh, be sentimental about all of this. And lose sight of the reason why he came. Why he had to come. And so this is why we focused this year on what we call the real Christmas. Right? And last week we looked at man's problem, which is sin. And we went all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we saw Adam and Eve disobey the direct command of God. And because of that, the consequence was death, separation from God, both physical death that would come later in their life, but also spiritual death. They were kicked out of the garden, separated from God. That's what sin does. And you follow that progression through to their children, Cain and Abel. You see what happened there. Cain killed his brother Abel. And then we see how, how uh, things got so bad that God brought his discipline upon the, the whole world through a great worldwide flood and began this uh, once again through Noah and his, and his son. Well, they weren't perfect either. And so we, we watch as we go through Scripture the progression of sin impacting person after person all the way down to us today. We also watch how God began to reveal His plan, His solution. Not only did He allude to it there in the garden, in his reference to the seed of the woman being in conflict with the seed of the serpent. And, uh, but, and also the image of, of God uh, taking and killing an animal and making a covering for Adam and Eve. But also you see this covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 12 when he told Abram he was going to make into him a great nation. And that through his seed he would bless all the nations of the earth. Referring to one day in the fullness of time, God would send forth the perfect, the perfect uh, seed who would, who would be the Savior. We see this progression again as we follow the nation that came from Abram, the nation of Israel. We see they continued in sin and disobedience to God. We see God establishing the sacrificial system was, which was intended to be a picture pointing to the perfect sacrifice one day. God continued to send messengers to the people to remind them of who He is and what His standard is and they're falling short of that and calling them back to it. And He continued to remind them of His promise. And this passage in Isaiah 9 is one of those times when God raised up a prophet to remind them of His promise. 
And so we come here to Isaiah chapter 9. And just as oftentimes was the case, the prophet would take the circumstances that are happening at the present time when he wrote, and he would, he would liken those circumstances and, and make a correlation to what uh, the promise was and what God had, had uh, told them that he would do. And, and so what was happening at this time was that the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom right, were, were separated. And Isaiah is prophesying during the time of King Ahaz in the south. Well, it was just in this time that the Assyrian army had come and attacked and conquered the northern kingdom taking them captive. And they were coming after the southern kingdom. They were on, uh, um, they were on high alert as, a, as, as the, the, the southern kingdom because the Assyrians were right there and they were um, uh, threatening to take them as well. And there was, there was a real threat. The Assyrians were the most powerful people on the earth at that moment in time. They were ruthless. And so there was great fear and anguish. Uh, things didn't look so, so uh, bright and cheery in those moments. And Isaiah then takes the reality of what they were experiencing, and he says, this isn't always going to be the case. Because not only was it a dark time in their history, it was a dark time for them spiritually. And so he likens that to then says, God it will not always be this way because God has made a promise and God will fulfill that promise. And then he speaks of the coming of Messiah. And so from this passage, we can learn about this one whose birth we celebrate. In the first five verses, we see the promise of deliverance where he talks about the gloom and the anguish that she was in, that is, the people of God. He says, in earlier times, he treated the, the, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. These were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. These particular tribes had their inheritance in the northern part of the northern kingdom, right? up by the Sea of Galilee. If you can picture the, the, uh, the landscape of Israel, you've got um, the Sea of Galilee, which funnels into the, uh, the Jordan River that goes down to the Dead Sea. And then from your, from your vantage point, on this side of it, there is the land, the land of Israel. All the different tribes had their inheritance. And there were three tribes on this side of the Jordan, that had, or two and a half tribes, that had gotten their inheritance. Uh, Bethlehem and, and Jer Jerusalem were on the southern portion on this side of the Jordan. Naphtali and Zebulun were up on the, on the top part. And they were attacked and taken captive by the Assyrians. It was a, a dark, dark time. But then, Isaiah says, in the, in the last part of verse 1, but later on, he, that is God, will make this place glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, which I understand from commentators that these were all statements referring to um, uh, either roads that went through that period of time uh, or through that that part of the of the uh, the country or something that that was attached to this um, this time frame and this place what happened in that region um, in in the first century that's where Galilee is 
Nazareth is located in Galilee. Right? Jesus is from Nazareth. And so what is it that he's talking about that God later on will make this place glorious? It's because that's where he was going to send the Messiah. And so we have this promise of deliverance. And there are three aspects to this promise in verses 2 through 5. And the first is that a great light will shine. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, he says. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And of course, the birth of Jesus is the coming of the light. Right? This is the fulfillment of this promise. You, remind, you remember that after Jesus was born, Luke's gospel account, Jesus was born and, and there was um, an old man in the temple named Simeon. They brought Jesus on the eighth day to dedicate him in the temple. And they named him Jesus on that day. And they, they paid their price that, they, that you were paid for the firstborn son to redeem him. And, and he's there in the temple and Simeon sees him. And, and by God's revelation to Simeon, he recognized this baby is the fulfillment of the promise. So he says these words in Luke chapter 2, 29 to 32. Apparently God had instructed Simeon in his old age that he would not die until he saw God's promise fulfilled. And so he says, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. He recognized Jesus as an infant is the fulfillment of this prophecy about a great light coming into a very dark land, shining in the darkness. We see even more clearly in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, <clears throat> When Jesus began, as a, as a young man, began his earthly ministry, and he was preaching not only in Nazareth but in Capernaum, which is also located in the northern part in Galilee, and it says these words, this, that is Jesus coming and preaching, this was to fulfill, Matthew 4, 14 through 16, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And so Jesus clearly is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus referred to himself more than once as the light of the world. And then, interestingly enough, in Matthew 5, Jesus says about us, you are the light of the world. Right? When we receive the light through our, through our relationship with Christ, we then become light into this world and salt to bring the truth to, to carry on. This concept of darkness throughout Scripture is oftentimes an image of sin and the consequences of sin. And certainly it was true in the land of Israel in Isaiah's day. 
They were in this darkness because of their disobedience to God. They continued to reject what God had told them to do, continued to reject the messages that God would bring to them from the prophets. And so God was bringing discipline upon the nation. And so it is an image throughout Scripture of sin, the consequences. In fact, Jesus speaking about uh, an eternal place called the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? Referring to hell and the place of eternal condemnation for those outside of Jesus Christ. And so he says that though it is dark, though the people walk in darkness, there is a great light. And that great light is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, verse 3 talks about a great joy will increase. Thou wilt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. And they'll be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. When Jesus came, right, in his birth, in the accounts of his birth, we see this idea of joy and rejoicing. Right? When the angel came to the shepherds out in the field and he says, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of what? A great joy which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so, His coming was with great joy. The angels rejoiced greatly at His coming, though He didn't come for them. They were rejoicing because of what this means for us. We see Joseph and Mary rejoicing. We see Simeon, as I mentioned before, rejoicing when he saw God's salvation. We see that, that, that the widow Anna, remember in Luke 2, right after the story of Simeon, you see Anna was a widow serving in the temple night and day. And when she saw, she recognized who he was. And she gave thanks to God. His coming brought great joy. And his second coming, when he comes back for us and he takes us home to be with him forever, will produce an increase of this great joy. And you know, for us, as we, as we ponder the reality of, of our problem of sin and the reality that we deserve to be separated forever from God, when we realize this, And the gospel, the message of Christ coming and what he came to provide produces in us a great rejoicing. When we do not understand what our need is, then we do not see the answer to our need as being anything of any value or anything worthy of rejoicing. So, there are people all over this, this community, not to mention the whole world, but all, just our community, who are going through life with no understanding of what their problem is. They know that they make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. That's part of being a human. Right? And so there's this rationalization that we as a society have come up with that just everybody's just what they are, and, and, you know, don't judge me for this. And there's been no understanding that sin has consequences. 
And that consequence is separation forever from God. When there's no understanding of that, what's the big deal about Jesus? I mean, yeah, we'll celebrate Christmas because because he's a cute baby in a manger. Who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want to celebrate that? And after all, man, it's a great time for for partying. It's a great time for presents. It's a great time to get together with friends. You know, fun music, just all of this. And we go through Christmas and we celebrate, but we have no idea what it's really about. And it's our job to make this reality of sin and the need known so that there is then a real understanding so that this can produce a real joy. But if we don't have a good understanding, then how are we going to communicate that to others? How are we going to be able to experience that joy and, and share that joy with others? The last two phrases of verse 3 speak of this, of this God's provision, rejoicing in the light of God's provision. He says, the gladness of harvest and the rejoicing when men divide the spoil. Right? The harvest, they plant it, but God waters it through the rain. God causes it to grow. And when they get to the end, when the harvest is there and they harvest the, the, what, what they planted, they rejoice in God's provision for them. And then when they divide the spoil after a great, great victory, they rejoice that God has given them that victory. You follow the nation of Israel all throughout the Scripture and you see that Time and time again, when they faced enemies, they were inadequate in themselves. And when they trusted God, God would give them a decisive and great victory over their enemies. When they tried to do it themselves, or when they tried to get help from other nations, they experienced defeat almost every time. And certainly, they experienced God's, God's uh, discipline upon them for not trusting Him. And so these are images of, of rejoicing because God has provided in a way that they could not for themselves. And this is what our salvation is. It's, it's God's provision, and so it produces a great joy that will only increase the more we understand our need and what God has done. It certainly will increase as we, as we enter into our eternal, um, our eternal reward in heaven. And thirdly, there's a great freedom that will come. Verses 4 and 5. Talks about the breaking of the yoke of burden um, and, the, and the, the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. And how these, these things like the boots of the warrior and the cloak that is blood-stained from battle will be rolled up and burned in the fire. It will be, we'll be done with all that. Just as at the battle of, of Midian, God delivered his people through Gideon and 300 men. Remember that in the book of Judges where, where they had, I think, 32,000 men who were ready to do battle, and God says he got too many. And so he, he sends almost all of them home other than 300 men in Gideon. And he says, now, now the odds are good, right? And they, because of God, were able to conquer the entire Midian army. Just 300 people. This was God at work. God doing what otherwise is impossible. And just as God delivered them then, so his deliverance is sure to 
through Jesus Christ over the bondage of sin. It's a decisive victory. E.J. Young in his commentary on Isaiah says, Mighty is the victory, so great that it may be compared with that over Midian wrought by the Lord through Gideon. Human strength in that day had been unavailing. And Gideon had no had to, had to recognize that the battle was the Lord's to be won only by his power. The present victory is similar. For it is won against a foe over whom human hands could have no power. And it was won by God and God alone. It was a spiritual battle. Won because a child would be born and the victory consisted in the deliverance of God's people from all that had oppressed them. Sin is a burdensome yoke for it subjects man to a slavery in which, like the beasts of toil, he is under a taskmaster that beats him. There is, no only, there is only one who can set man free from the yoke in which he has been bound, and that one is God and God alone. The act of delivering man from sin is a mighty victory, so mighty in fact that man could never have won it any more than Gideon unaided could have conquered the Midianites. Christ has set us free from sin, from the, the burden, the hold that sin has upon us. But we must walk in that freedom. There's no magic formula to being free from besetting sins in our life, even as believers. It's about trusting God and walking in obedience to His Word, getting up every day, committing ourselves that day to yield to the Lord and to walk in accord with His Word. There's no prayer that someone's going to pray over you that's going to just magically deliver you from all of these issues in your life. Prayer is important. Encouragement from others, accountability from others. All of these are things that God uses, but at the end of the day, you and I must decide, I'm going to walk with God today. In the power of His Spirit, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to yield myself to Him, and I'm going to get up today, and I'm going to walk in obedience to His Word. And as you stack those days together, you find that you are experiencing a freedom as you walk with God. There is a great freedom that will come because of the one who came in fulfillment of this prophecy. Freedom from certainly damnation in hell as we look to Him for salvation, but freedom each day from the hold that sin has upon our lives. Now we come to the person who will deliver. In verses 6 and 7. He would come as a baby. Talks about the government resting on his shoulders. And verse 7 talks about him fulfilling the Davidic uh, promise of, of one of David's descendants reigning on the throne forever and ever. And we know that to be referring to a future for us even now. Uh, certainly we believe that Christ reigns in the hearts and lives of His people even today. But I want to focus the remainder of our time on these four statements about what He will be called. These are not intended to be names that Jesus, when He came to earth in the flesh, would be named. 
any more than the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14, Emmanuel was a name that Jesus would have. It simply was a name that referred to the character in which he would have. Right? Emmanuel means God with us. That is who he was when he came. But that's not what he was called. Any more than he was called these four names. But these names reveal the character of who the Messiah is. And it's important for us to understand that. Right? His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor, which literally means wonder of a counselor. He is a wonder of a counselor. The word counselor means one who gives advice. Right? One who gives counsel or direction in our lives. And certainly when we look at Jesus' life, we see that not only in his words did he give counsel, but also in his life, his example is a counsel to us. How he lived his life. His teaching is not considered conventional wisdom. Right? When he said, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. When he said, if you want to be great, you must become a servant. If you want to be first, you must be slave of all. That's not conventional wisdom. When he said, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. And everyone who seeks to save his own life will lose it. Jesus is talking about something different than what we experience in this world than we live. The messages in this world are not the same as his. We can choose to follow conventional wisdom of our day. We can choose to follow the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. He not only spoke these things, he lived it. He put it on display. He not only told his disciples, you want to be great? Become a servant. But he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving others, sacrificing for their benefit. That's the life Jesus lived. That's the example he gave. That's his counsel to those who would follow him. It doesn't make any sense in this world. When it's all about getting ahead and being the best that you can be and, and, and using other people to get ahead in life, that's not the way of Jesus. Success in God's economy is about serving others. It's about denying yourself that you can live for Christ. That doesn't appeal to our flesh. But if we know Christ as our Savior and our Lord, and we desire to live a life that honors Him, and we begin to embrace the counsel of this one this wonderful counselor. He is indeed a wonder of a counselor. And if we follow his counsel, we will live a life that God our creator intended for us to live. We will experience a joy that is not tied to our circumstances. A real, deep, abiding joy as we walk 
in right fellowship with the Lord. His name will also be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Certainly Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh. Perfect God, perfect man. But this word mighty actually means hero. Warrior, champion. And this is who Jesus is. Jesus heroically came to earth to rescue us from the enemy of sin and death. Every good story, every good movie is about right somebody who's in distress, somebody who can't help themselves, right? The, the damsel in distress, who at the, at the very last moment when everything looks hopeless, the hero swoops in somehow, some way, and rescues and delivers from impending doom. This is the stories that we love to see, right? It takes different forms, but this is the essence of it. Why is that? Because that's our story. That's the story of history. Sin entered into this world and doomed us. And we were held in the clutches of that. And, and we were destined for an eternity apart from God. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his hero who came to deliver us, to rescue us from impending doom. He is the hero, God. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for us. His name will be called Eternal Father. It speaks both of Jesus' eternal, everlasting nature as God. It also speaks of His fatherly character, loving us. This is not a reference to the Trinity. Jesus is not the Father. There is the Father, the Son, which is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But he is a father to us in the sense that his character is that of a loving father who cares for us, who meets our needs. Because he is eternal, he knows the beginning from the end. Think about that. He knows the beginning of time from the end of time. He knows the beginning of your life from the end of your life. He knows the beginning of what you're going through right now and the end of it. He knows what he wants to accomplish through what is going on in your life right now. You and I can't see that because we're not eternal. We can remember things from the past, but our memory is cloudy. We often remember things different than they really were. Often we remember them better than they were. Jesus knows it all. And he is able to work. And because he is a loving, fatherly uh, character in our life, he can take what is going on, which seems out of control, and he can work it and bring about a good end. A result that will be the most loving thing for us 
It may not be the thing we want. Just as when we are children, we get into trouble. We don't want to be disciplined, but that's the loving thing to do. That's what will produce in us character down the road. That's what will produce what we morally want for our life in the end. We just don't want to go through the hard things that bring it about. Jesus loves us so much, He will let us go through the hard things, and He will work through those hard things to produce the character, the good things in our life in the end. And so as our eternal Father in that sense, Jesus is able to work. So don't just see a baby in a manger. See the eternal one who loves us eternally and is able to do this work in us. And then lastly, he, his name will be called Prince of Peace. Jesus has provided peace. Peace with God. Right? In Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That is, there is, there is an enmity because of sin that was brought about in our relationship with God. Jesus came to bring reconciliation, to bring peace with God. And so His death on the cross satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God against sin. And he calls us, right, to believe on Christ and to receive what Christ did for us, for ourselves, for individual lives by faith. Jesus did the work of reconciling us to God. We receive that by faith, trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished. He has provided peace with God as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53, another prophecy of Isaiah, in which he, he talks about, of course in his, in, in his day it was still yet to come, but he talks about the Messiah and what he would accomplish for us. And he says about him, he says he was despised, Isaiah 53, 3-6, he despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And then he says, Surely our griefs himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we, are see, we ourselves esteemed him, stricken of God, or smitten of God and afflicted. But we, he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're all in this together. We've all done this. We've all turned away. And yet the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. our place. He provided peace with God. He also has provided the peace of God. Through Christ we have this peace of God. Um, Philippians chapter 4 verse 7 speaks about this peace of God. That, that passes all comprehension. We can't even understand it. And yet it guards our heart and our minds in Christ Jesus. Because, because in the verse before, it was, 
we, we laid down our anxiety. We, we laid our concerns to the Lord and we, we left them there. And that His peace comes and overwhelms us so that we don't worry, we don't fear, we don't live in anxiety. Because we're trusting Him who is the Prince of Peace. Ray Ortland, in his commentary, sums it up this way. He says, as the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's get behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy our relationship with Him. And as the Prince of Peace, He reconciles us while we were still enemies. Let's welcome His dominion and His rule over our lives. God's solution is the baby who was born in Bethlehem. But it isn't just about a baby. It's about who He is. Wonderful Counselor. He is the Mighty God. Everlasting Father. He is our Prince of Peace. As we look to Him, trust in Him, celebrate what His coming means for us. Let's pray. Gracious, merciful God, thank You. Thank You for these names that are given to us in this prophecy that teach us about this baby that came, whose birth we celebrate. This is why there was such great rejoicing at His coming. The angels understood things we, as a, as a people, did not understand in that day. We have today the, the privilege of being able to look back and, and, and to know the Word of God. To see not only what was prophesied, but how it was fulfilled. And these truths about who Jesus is still ring true for us today. And we can walk in light of that. So God, we pray you'll help us to look to you, to trust in Jesus. To let him have his way in our lives. He's not an oppressive God that, that just wants to maintain some control over us and not let us have fun. That's the lie that Eve believed in the garden. No, Lord, you are a loving God who wants what's best for us, who knows what's best for us, who can bring about what's best for us if we will trust you. We'll let you work even in the things that don't feel comfortable in the moment. Help us to know you. Help us to celebrate deeply, profoundly, the coming of Jesus to this earth. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.